Hello, my name is Michael Albert, and I am the host of the podcast titled Revolution Z. This is episode 60, and today we have as our guest Noam Chomsky. By way of introducing Noam, since you all no doubt know of him, I will offer a little story. I was visiting Poland at the time of vast uprising there over 30 years ago, and I was sitting in a living room with a bunch of very astute and courageous Polish activists from an organization called KOR, K-O-R. Somehow the talking brought up linguistics. One of the people in the room was studying it, and he asked about Chomsky's views, and I said how I knew Chomsky and offered some comments. Maybe 20 minutes later, we were talking about events in the U.S., and they asked me something, and I made reference to Chomsky. And someone said to me, what an amazing coincidence that you know both Noam Chomsky's. I was taken a bit aback, and then I realized that, yes, they all thought there were two Chomsky's, one a famous, accomplished, incredibly prolific linguist, the other a famous, accomplished, astoundingly prolific social activist. It took some time to convince them that Chomsky was just he, not they. And with good reason. Chomsky is an unlikely reality in either persona alone. But in both, he is impossible. And yet, here he is. Noam, you recently became 91. It is striking to me that when you were 19 years older than me, when we first met in the mid-1960s, it was a giant chasm. Today, the 19 years feels like a modest gap. I've gotten older, mind and body, but you, still young. At any rate, I have a somewhat intrusive question to start us off. Do you feel that giving so much of your life energies to advancing causes of social justice has been worth it? Uh. I think about it sometimes, it's, uh, and the question basically doesn't arise. I mean, I knew when I started plunging in intensively in the early 1960s, I had had a, enough experience in activism, in fact, back to childhood, to understand that it's not something that it's not like putting your toe in the water and then not going any further. It just drags you in and becomes all-consuming, which would mean, of course, that I would have to cut back uh, substantially, in fact, on uh, intellectual activities that uh, research, uh, uh, other activities that uh, I valued very highly. So it was a decision, but once it got started, everything else is just a necessity. Question doesn't arise. Yes, I had to cut back on a lot of things. And with the benefit of hindsight, are there any large things you feel you might better have done differently than the way you proceeded? Putting aside the fact that I simply stopped pursuing many uh, issues and problems that I had been looking at and kept to a narrow range of subjects on, my, on one half of my brain, the uh, research uh, science half, uh, putting that aside, in the realm of social activism, yes, there were mistakes. Uh, so, for example, in uh, uh, the early 1960s, starting then, uh, I was I began trying to do some uh, to work in opposition to the expanding Vietnam War, and there were mistakes. Uh, I uh, was insufficiently uh, critical of the U.S. actions. For some time, I referred to it as a civil war in uh, Vietnam. And it took me a little while, actually, with some 
uh, assistance from old-time activists who recognized that it was not a civil war, it was just a straight act of aggression. Uh, that kind of mistake, yes, I've made a number of times. You've been uh, long identified with the anarchist tradition. You call yourself an anarchist syndicalist at times, or at least with particular aspects of it. How would you describe your broad political and social allegiances, your desires for how social life ought to look, and how do you think those allegiances and desires inform your political choices? Well, this goes back pretty much to childhood. I, you know, maybe it's a fair criticism, I don't know, but I actually haven't changed my views much in, at a general level since I was a young teenager. Uh, starting to become immersed in the left literature, a wide range of it, uh, uh, ranging from you know, Leninist all, all the way across to the left to the anarchist literature. It became, it just seemed to me obvious right away that uh, any uh, arrangement of uh, domination and hierarchy someone giving orders, someone else taking them, uh, is uh, fundamentally illegitimate. At least it has a very high burden of proof to me to justify itself. And if it can't, and it should be challenged, everyone from the level of uh, personal relations, uh, family, up to the level of uh, international affairs at every level, and if it can't justify itself, which is almost always the case, efforts should be made to dismantle it in favor of more fair, just, uh, 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 free uh, structures and relations. That's basically the core of uh, uh, the anarchist uh, tradition as I see it. Where do you trace the roots of this perspective to? It has roots in classical liberalism in the Enlightenment. Actually, some of the roots go back to classical Greece and Rome. When you look closely, it's, it's worth remembering that, for example, that until throughout almost all of modern history, all history, until the mid-19th century, it was considered an intolerable uh, attack on a person's uh, basic rights and integrity if they were compelled to uh, uh, undertake wage labor to work for others. Uh, if somebody worked for someone else, he was not a full human being. Uh, the way it was put by one of the leading uh, classical liberal figures, uh, Wilhelm von Humboldt, is that if an artisan produces a beautiful work on command, that we may admire what he does, but we despise what he is not a free, independent human being, but a tool in the hands of others. But it wasn't only intellectuals who saw things. Uh, that was understood not only by the you know, leading uh, writers and thinkers and so on, but also by working people. And you look back at the early Industrial Revolution, uh, the Knights of Labor, uh, the authentic populist movement, not what's called populism today, late 19th century, uh, their, I, their fundamental principle was that uh, there should be a collective society, a cooperative society in which people are the 
directors and managers of their own affairs in collective action, and that no person should suffer the uh, assault on fundamental human rights uh, that's uh, encapsulated in wage labor. It took a long time to beat that idea out of people's heads, and I don't think it's very much below the surface today. What are some of the ways, do you think, that uh, the system, so to speak, did beat that out of people's heads, and why does it stay a bit below the surface instead of bursting into people's attitudes and beliefs and actually, more importantly, their behaviors day to day? Well, first of all, a lot of violence was involved. Uh, That goes back to uh, primitive accumulation, uh, to depriving people by force of their means of production and subsistence. Uh, That's what the enclosure movements were about in England. Uh, There were eliminating the commons, that people that were the traditional preserve of the whole community. Uh, you know, it's the resistance to that, is, uh, which was extreme, is captured in things like the Robin Hood le- legends. Uh, but uh, for centuries, uh, the uh, uh, gentry in England and the political powers tr- uh, carried out a movement to simply drive people off their lands, off the common lands that were uh, maintained uh, by the general community, the forests, uh, the woodlands, the pastures, and so on, sustained, maintained communally, and everyone had access to them. Uh, they were used for what now, would now would be called welfare, you know, like a widow could uh, cultivate uh, part, could, uh, part of the woodlands and so on. Uh, all of that was driven out, but was taken away by violence. Uh, the and in fact, with the support of uh, leading intellectuals, including uh, some of the founders of classical liberalism, and it goes on like that. The early nineteenth century, the labor struggles to try to maintain control of the uh, workplace uh, to ensure that to take a slogan of the Knights of Labor that those who work in the mills should own them. That struggle was beaten back by violence, considerable violence, in fact. Uh, the, uh, both the uh, labor movement, the militant labor movement of the late 19th, early 20th century, the, the radical farmers movement, which is called populist, again, not in the contemporary sense, the huge radical farmers movement, which tried to free themselves from the control of uh, uh, northeastern uh, bankers and uh, uh, the controllers of the market and so on. Uh, a lot of force was used to uh, crush those movements. And they keep coming back. Uh, so, for example, uh, one part of the background for the neoliberal assault against the population in the last 40 years was the militant strike wave in the early 70s, uh, Lordstown and others, where uh, most young workers, uh, women, uh, farm workers were struggling not just for uh, wages, but for a dignified life, for control of their own lives. That was frightening, led to a big backlash of which the neoliberal assault is one part of it. Keeps coming all the time. We see it in the teacher strikes today and other things. Uh, so partly it was violence, 
And partly it was just massive propaganda. By propaganda, do you have in mind what people call advertising, popular culture, and the like? It takes one of the major industries in the United States, uh, the public relations industry, spends hundreds of billions of dollars a year to try to control people's thinking and attitudes. It just tries to instill in people the assumption, the understanding, that there's no other way of life than the one that involves spending most of your waking hours uh, under the control of someone else who dictates everything you do uh, in, the form, in a manner beyond what could be done in a totalitarian state and spend the rest of your life trying to, you know, at the shopping mall or uh, somewhere else trying to pick up commodities. Uh, you're bombarded every day in your life, uh, every moment with uh, uh, we don't call it propaganda, we call it ads, but it's propaganda uh, to try to get you to feel that the only thing of value in life is having more uh, goods that you can throw away somewhere. Uh, in fact, it's kind of interesting that uh, it's not usually clearly recognized uh, in all the uh, odes to uh, how wonderful markets are and how marvelous capitalism is rarely recognize that one of the major industries in the country is dedicated, its sole purpose, in fact, is to undermine markets. Uh, anyone who's taken an economics course or you know, looked at the newspapers knows that markets are supposed to be based on uh, informed consumers making rational choices. And economists, uh, you know, prove theorems about that and so on. All you have to do is open your eyes to see that you're being bombarded with efforts to create uninformed consumers who make irrational choices. Now that's called uh, uh, advertising. That's the commercial industries. Going back to Thorstein Veblen, they're creating uh, fabricated needs. Now they have to, to try to keep you controlled and to keep the system working. And by now, it's a high art. So by now, what uh, Shoshana Zuboff calls surveillance capitalism is becoming an extensive de a control system. Uh, you're driving a car and uh, massive information is going directly to commercial enterprises and the car manufacturers about you and what you're doing, uh, knowing your background. Uh, do you like Chinese restaurants? Okay, there'll be an ad saying uh, there's a Chinese restaurant uh, you know, half a mile ahead and so on and so forth. And all of this is partially, it leads to control. I mean, it's reached the point where uh, uh, there are experiments with uh, installing chips in uh, working people with the, uh, uh, tempt the temptation is uh, if you have the chip, you can... Uh, use the, you know, you can use the uh, coffee machine or the sandwich machine and you can do this and that, so why don't you get it? Meanwhile, it controls you. If you're not uh, taking the, if you stop to have a cup of coffee when uh, management says that's not time, you get a, you get a warning. Uh, and a, uh, and the, the warning can be uh, uh, some uh, punishment. Uh, if you're driving a car and you go through a red light, uh, your insurance company can send you a message saying, uh, 
you, you do that again, you're going to raise your insurance uh, rates. Uh, all sorts of means of control are being developed. This will become much worse as we move to what's called the Internet of Things, where just about everything in your house or near you or your work is uh, uh, is devouring information about you, fed back to central sources uh, used to control your behavior and pressure you. Uh, these are massive techniques of uh, efforts. It's it's all. I mean, it goes back to the 19th century, to early industrial capitalism. Uh, uh, you know, it used to be that uh, the manager of a work of a workplace would try to keep his eye, almost always his eye, on uh, the workforce and make sure they're doing the right thing. Now it's much more sophisticated. Uh, in an Amazon workplace, for example, if you take the wrong path between two uh, destinations, uh, you'll get you're not only monitored, but you'll be uh, warned and punished. And uh, This is getting down to tight detail where we see an extreme example of that in part of China where it's been developed uh, to a, what's called a social credit system where you get maybe a thousand credits and you're constantly monitored by uh, uh, cameras, face recognition, and other devices. And if you uh, jaywalk, you get a penalty. Help an old lady across the street, you may get a little bit of a reward. But pretty soon all this gets internalized, and you just become a slave to the monitoring and control system. Given that, and it's a pretty gory picture, a pretty, uh, it's not pretty, it's just not a pretty gory picture, it's an incredibly horrible picture. The other side of the coin is, what kinds of steps uh, need to be taken or can be taken to communicate with people uh, something that challenges that, something that can undo that? So what I'm asking there is, given your understanding of the violent, but also the uh, propagandistic, the manipulative, the uh, even attempting or seeming to be positive, but not really, dynamics that cause people uh, to lose touch with the potential of being a human being and with the potential of taking control of their lives and of battling against and overcoming hierarchies. What do you think activist movements need to stress and to focus on to have an impact, to to cause people to rise up? Well, first of all, we should remember that propaganda, while it's insidious, is not like torture chambers. You can resist it. And in fact, it's pretty shallow. The reason for the massive flood of propaganda is because of the understanding on the part of the highly class conscious business world that the controls are very thin. You have to really inundate people uh, day and night uh, to try to make sure that this propaganda takes hold. Uh, it uh, expands enormously. Uh, just to give you one example, I think the last baseball game I went to was in 1937 uh, when I was a kid. And then when my grandson got interested in sports a little later, took him to professional baseball games for a while. I couldn't believe what I saw. Every place you look, there's an ad. Nothing like that existed in the 30s. 
You know, every spot you look at has an ad for something. Well, that's the way this, the industries have recognized that they're going to really have to work hard to ram in this destructive propaganda. The other side of that coin is it's pretty easy to dismantle. It doesn't take much to get people to understand what they're enduring and being subject to. Now, that has to be accompanied among activists by setting up alternative institutions, uh, building the structures of a future society within the present ones. And that can be done in all sorts of ways. Uh, cooperatives, uh, uh, localist movements, uh, uh, self-managed uh, enterprises, uh, all kinds of ways in which people's natural instinct for cooperation and mutual aid can be developed and nurtured. In fact, that's one of the things that labor movements did as long as they were functioning and alive. It's one of the reasons for the extreme hostility to unions on the part of the business world. They just foster this these efforts of solidarity. It's kind of interesting to see in the United States, particularly a highly business-run society, how intensive the efforts are to break down solidarity. So, for example, in the labor movement, one of its leading elements, not only slogans, but actions, was solidarity. If some workers are fighting for their rights, we'll help them. Well, as soon as the Second World War ended, and it was possible to try to begin to reverse the the radical democratic forces that developed during the Depression and the war, immediately, 1947, the legislation was passed banning uh, things like secondary boycotts, uh, efforts by labor to develop solidarity and mutual support. And it continues like that. Our business knows what it's doing. We have to do the opposite. We have to support, nurture, create structures in which people do exercise their natural tendencies, instincts uh, to work together in solidarity with mutual aid. So there's, that's part of the, you know, that interacts with the educational process. They are mutually supportive. And that's being done and can be done. And I think the whole system is so fragile that it could collapse very quickly. We agree on that. I wonder if you've seen, I know you don't watch a lot of TV, but if you've seen uh, the Bernie Sanders ad, uh, meaning a campaign ad, in which he's he's on the screen and he's sort of talking to the audience, which is to say he's talking to viewers, and he asks viewers uh, to look at the person next to to them or across town from them, and he asks whether they can fight or they can imagine fighting as hard for that person as they would fight for themselves. Uh, I was uh, quite blown away by this ad, the contrast between it and anything I had seen from any candidate in my entire lifetime. And I hope it's resonating. I don't really know, of course. Well, that's the right, I haven't seen it, but uh, it's the right kind of thing, surely. And it has to be buttressed by actual Engagement sure. in ongoing activities. It's not enough to think it. You have to be acting it. Uh, that's why development of cooperative institutions, self-managed institutions of one sort or another is so important. So people can become 
immersed in them, uh, internalize the values of participating in them. Of course, I agree about that. But in our time, getting a little more practical and a little more topical, at least to my eyes, we are still in the early stages of what I think could prove to be the most important U.S. presidential election in my lifetime, in your lifetime, and perhaps in all time. On the one hand, given that uh, activists, anti-capitalists, anti-racist, anti-sexist, including you, have been organizing and fighting for over 50 years, how do you understand Trump getting into the White House? Other factors aside, uh, and of course there are many other factors, doesn't it reveal that our efforts have had flaws that current and future activists need to correct? Well, I think... uh there are flaws, not, not, not so much us. Lot, you can find lots of flaws. Uh, one flaw, for example, is uh, the failure to develop a labor party. Uh, that is not an... I mean, the U.S. labor movement, different from others, including even just Canada, uh, tended to be class collaborationist. We can see it, for example, in the uh, healthcare system. Uh, Canada has a normal, the normal kind of healthcare system of developed societies that the U.S. doesn't. One reason for that is that the unions in Canada struggled for healthcare for everyone. The same unions in the United States fought for healthcare for themselves. You can see that on the front pages of the New York Times this morning, where a major union in uh, Nevada large part of it is opposing uh, Sanders' Medicare for All policies because they themselves, uh, through uh, their own union struggles within their own uh, enterprises, got good health care for themselves, okay, not for anyone else. Well, this class collaboration collapsed, of course, as soon as management pulled out, as everyone knew it should have known it would. But one of the results is there's no labor-based party. That's not necessarily the case. Back in the 70s, the Mike Pizzotti, the head of the uh, Oil, Energy, uh, Atomic uh, Workers Union, did try to form a party. He was uh, one of the early environmentalists, uh, one of the, the major uh, uh, labor, uh, he was a militant labor activist, very important position. Tried again through the 90s. It was didn't get enough support and was crushed. But that's a big flaw. means you're kind of stuck in the two capitalist parties. But Sanders is breaking out of that. And that's a very significant development. Um, his campaign, both in 2016 and today, is a break from uh, a century of uh, American political history, where elections are pretty much bought. Uh, it's very good work on this by Tom Ferguson, as you know. Uh, this is the first time that the elections are not just being bought. Well, if that can really work, it's a major breakthrough. 